take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new episode of the First Watch Podcast. I am Zach. And I'm not here with Cole, who is currently on vacation. He's on his way to Las Vegas, Nevada. Instead, I'm here with my friend Tyke. We're here to talk about a series of films that we just got to see at the Texas Theater last weekend, all celebrating cinematographer Roger Deakins. How are you doing, Tyke? Doing pretty good, pretty good. The movies that we got to see from Thursday through Sunday were Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Denny Villeneuve's Sicario. Coen Brothers, No Country for Old Men. And finally, Roger Deakins' Oscar winner, Denny Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. So we're going to talk a little bit about the experience of going to these different showings, the events, the Q&A, and all these different films that were shot by Deakins. Before we get there, Tyke, you been able to catch up with anything else recently besides the movies that we saw together? Um, I mean, before that, on the 7th, I saw Spider-Verse. Probably that was the topic of our last episode. That's your favorite of this year? I think so far, yeah. That and John Wick 4 have been the only two like bangers, mm. I would say, for this yeah. year for me. I think I saw you know, just one of those little four stills tweets, and it's John Wick Chapter 4 across the Spider-Verse, Avatar The Way of Water, and I think the fourth one that they had was Guardians 3, which I think is a little bit of a stretch, but those first three are all really good. I might flip that out with No Time to Die, and that's kind of like the blockbuster set for me of the last couple of years. Mm, yeah guardians was fine i saw that too yeah i thought that was okay maybe the batman probably some people would flip in there dune to me the batman is to me the the separate themselves from the rest it's like spider-verse batman and logan are the only good comic book movies pretty much Mm. the rest are like kind of good here or there to varying degrees but in terms of like actual well-made films it's only those to me Yeah, for me, not a lot else that I've caught up with. Most of it we'll talk about with Cole the next time that we record. Although I will shout, during this Roger Deakins series, I actually caught up with, I rewatched David Fincher 7. I don't exactly know. I think it was because Brad Pitt's and Jesse James Mm, as Jesse James. And a friend of mine and I were talking about like, what's the best Brad Pitt performance and all that stuff. Do you think, what's, what's the best Brad Pitt performance to you? I have to pull up the filmography, but honestly, I don't know if it's the best, but you know what my favorite is? What's that? Troy. Troy. Oh, shit. I love that movie. David Benioff. That's like, uh, what what is it called? Whatever. Something's not that great, but you love it. (laughs) No, but there's a word. I can't think of the word. Like a guilty pleasure? Yeah, guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Troy is a guilty pleasure. (laughs) It's like a four and a half for me. I love that movie. Uh, That always used to bug. So it's written by Benioff, one of the two guys that did Game of Thrones. Oh, no. And- I think that movie pissed me off when I was a teenager for the same reason that Game of Thrones did, kind of. It's like, they're really afraid of the fantasy there. Like, there's no mythology in the Iliad, which is like, wait a minute, what the fuck are we doing? I need that, like, Northman where you get the mix of the history and the mythology. Did I send you that trailer about that uh, Bosque language movie that's supposed to be coming out? It's like some ninth century shit. Yeah, it looks cool. Looked kind of neat. Yeah. But yeah, I caught up with Seven. I think I was in the mood for it from Sicario and No Country being these kind of like seedy procedurals where a lot of violent shit happens. Anyway, it just kind of was something that I was in the mood for and hadn't seen for a while. Maybe getting ready for that new Fincher coming out this year, The Killer. Oh, Fincher's probably like a top three director for me, I'd say. It's like Fincher, Kubrick, and Denis. Fincher and Scorsese and Villeneuve all have movies coming out this year. But I'm just excited. I love Fastbender. 
Well, all right, let's go ahead and get into it. So this Deacon series actually started before any of the movies with a book signing, which you went to. Any notes on the signing portion of it before the movies got started? It took longer than I thought. And I was like, dang, why is this taking so long? Because I got mine at like 3.30 <laughs> and I left at like 5.10. But I get why, because Roger and James, they would actually like talk to you if you wanted to. You'd have a little conversation and then like they'd take a picture. I see why they were taking their time with it. It wasn't just like, all right, sign and go. I think that's what I appreciated most about Rogers. Just seems like he's just a cool dude. Yeah, I think there was a pretty big gap between when that started because I think that first screening was at like seven o'clock. So it was a four hour gap and they were still signing when I got there for the movie. I feel like not many people who've reached that level of greatness in their craft, you know, 17 Oscar noms, won it twice, should have won it more, you know, all his success being that gracious with his time. Appreciated, I'd say. Did you chat him up about anything when you got yours signed? Yeah, what I say? I'm trying to remember. Ex- I don't remember exactly what I asked. But at first, I was just like, oh, I love y'all's podcast. I learned a lot from just about film in general listening. And then I appreciate all their films. And I said, I hope they work with Denis again. And they both laughed and were like, yeah, hopefully so. <laughs> I feel like you can tell from that in the Q&A, too, that him and Denis, that they have a good relationship. I forget if it was you that was telling me. I think they made the offer for Deacons to shoot Dune. And he didn't really want to step back into another giant sci-fi project after Blade Runner. He said it on one of the podcasts. I don't remember which one. Because he'll have people he's worked with a lot of the times. So I don't remember which one it was. Yeah, so for those that maybe don't know, I don't know. Uh, you know, if you listen to this, you're probably a little bit aware of cinematographers. But Roger Deakins, maybe first, second, third cinematographer I was ever aware of. It was like him, Emmanuel Lubezki, who works with Terrence Malik and Alfonso Cuaron. And then for me, I guess it would be Matthew Liebetik, who shot a lot of Darren Aronofsky's films, because that was just what I was into when I was a teenager. But Roger Deakins was just one of those first names that I learned that wasn't a famous movie star, that wasn't a director like Steven Spielberg, that wasn't a composer like John Williams. You know, there's those names that kind of pop up even in, you know, when you're just a kid absorbing movies that are big. You know, you see Tim Burton's name plastered on stuff when you're a kid. But Roger Deakins maybe one of the very first like kind of behind the camera technical individuals who I ever learned who he was. And then kind of over the course of my lifetime, it just, you know, through the 90s, through the 2000s, 2010s, now into this decade, just a career of excellence. You just go down the list. He got his start in the 80s. I would say that like in the 90s, when he starts collaborating with the Coen brothers, you just kind of have a run of films where every single one of them, regardless of what you may think of the movie, just excellent cinematography, excellent lighting. And it's never just like totally flashy. There's always kind of a purpose to it, which we'll unpack through these movies. But I think it was really cool to me to have a series that was oriented around not an actor, not a director, but someone who had reached such a high profile from a technical craft yeah. side of the filmmaking. Uh, he's definitely the first non yeah like big name like you said that i've been aware of and even telling people about that trip and me doing all that whatever i would say just like those movies we saw and a couple other ones like oh okay now i know who you're talking about just because right. he's made been a part of so many banger movies or it's like right. even something maybe not as high acclaimed as like jarhead but it's like oh well yeah that was pretty well shot like that looked good mm-hmm. even if the movie is not the best it's always going to look amazing when he's doing it. everybody's going to be able to know what you're talking about if you say no country for old men Fargo, The Shawshank Redemption, even if they maybe don't have that name in their mind, I think the work starts to speak for itself. And so it's one of those things where once you've kind of opened the book 
on discovering more about movies. He's just a name that pops up, especially with all those award nominations that you already mentioned. Even something like 1984. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember sure. when I read, when I watched that for the first time. I think that was like 2021, so I'd have to look. That was one where I watched like, oh, that was just pretty good. I think that was like his first big movie, right? If I'm not mistaken. So he started off shooting in documentaries. I think that might have been one of his earlier like feature films. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even know that was him. I remember I just saw the credits and I was like, oh, Roger Deakins. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think the earliest work of his, I mean, I've seen 1984. I think the earliest work of his that I like saw kind of early on when I was figuring out who he was would have been Sid and Nancy. Mm-hmm. It was about Sid Vicious, directed by Alex Cox. Actually, Alex Cox, kind of a fun shout. We saw all these films at the Texas Theater, which is in Dallas. Alex Cox is kind of a famed guy there. There's a trailer segment that he did. There's like all the Walker posters. So fun little connection between a Texas theater, I don't know, icon, I guess, and then Roger Deakins, who was doing this series. Yeah. And then his first Coen Brothers collaboration would have been Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo, and then The Big Lebowski. So the first movie that we saw was an Oscar-nominated film by Roger Deakins, one of the big 2007 USA movies from that just incredibly loaded year, of which we saw two for this series. And I've actually also seen both Zodiac and There Will Be Blood, both at the Texas Theater. So now I've seen oh, all four of them. I gotta see those. This was The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, directed by Andrew Dominic, Australian director. We get to see this one on 35mm. This is the only one of the four screenings that they hosted in their upstairs auditorium, and it was the only one that we saw on film. Had you seen Jesse James before this? Nope, that was my first. Oh, okay. I definitely have, but I didn't remember anything. I feel like I just remembered a couple shots. Like, I remember, like, just faintly in my mind as a kid seeing a cowboy movie with Brad Pitt, like, knowing yeah. that existed, but I didn't remember anything about it. So I would say, yeah, this is my first, like, real watch of it. Yeah, fresh experience. What'd you think? What'd you take away from it? Oh, that was just, I mean, it's got to be the best Western in this century, right? Uh, yeah, I think pretty much it's that. And then the other one for me is a little more unusual. It'd be Meek's Cutoff by Kelly Reichard, which is more of like austere drama indie movie. Doesn't have that same painterly quality. It's not nearly as big. Doesn't have the movie star factor of, you know, Brad Pitt and everything. Mm -hmm. This like has always stood out to me as a really unique against movie. It's a really standout movie, even of his really big and celebrated filmography you just kind of watch it and i think it's flashier than some of the other ones like the lens choices he's using these custom lenses that kind of blur out the sides of the images there's a lot of lighting whether it's natural lighting or you know his own lighting that's just very photographic and it was kind of interesting i was interested to learn from deacons being there during this screening and then from our q a that we had on sunday it comes across that the reason it is like this is because it's a Dominic film and he's a very visual director. He had a very like pointed idea of what he wanted this to look like, a kind of specific photograph style, as if you were watching a movie made out of really old photographs from that particular era. It's just a really beautiful look. And I think that it helps the way the story is so kind of loose because it just kind of goes from character to character to character over this period of time through these seasons. And there's not really like a hard and fast narrative to it, but it's that look that kind of holds everything together to me and creates this sour mood. I don't know, really beautiful film. I was really happy to get to see it in theaters. Yeah, definitely gave me, I'm not huge on Westerns, because all of them to me can be kind of boring. I don't know, it depends on maybe the director... 
not like a huge fan of the genre, I would say, but I like when other things use it in their influence and kind of put a twist on it. Tura, yeah, yeah. I think I told you that I felt like Sicario. Yeah. Honestly, all the movies all felt have Western elements in that sense. Yeah. All four of the movies. I kind of saw it like the first one's a pure Western, although there's some unique qualities to it. Sicario's like a neo-Western, very modern. I think No Country's a neo-Western, but it's also got a lot of noir in it. Yes. It's hard for a Coen Brothers not to have noir. And then 2049 kind of picks up because Blade Runner's a noir. And, uh, it's like sci-fi, so a noir, noir Western there. all mixed together. Yeah, Where, yeah it's got those big vistas. You know what I like about Jesse James? So it's kind of written into the idea because it's about the death of the West. But I think if you look at literature, or you look at theater, or you look at music, or you look at photography, all of those are represented in this film. You can see like the nickel books that inspire Robert Ford as a kid. They are doing that stage play by the end of it. Something that's kind of interesting to me, or has always been interesting to me with Western movies, is that those are all made in California here in America, and they start only after the West is gone. So there's never a point in the history of Western cinema where it's not an elegy, where it's not reflecting back on this time that no longer exists. What Jesse James does exceptionally well is like the minute that that movie starts, everything is already winding down. There's no glory. There's no rise and fall. It's more like music to me than a story where it just kind of feels like this long, sad song. Straight falling action, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like there's not, yeah. there's not a climax. It's almost sets you up where it's like the climax of Jesse James' life has already happened. Mm-hmm. You're watching just the tail end of it. The number one thing I actually realized when even like halfway through watching this, where I was like, oh, Red Dead 2 definitely just copied this. Have <laughs> you played Red Dead 2? <laughs> yeah, I've played a bit of it. Did you uh, not I know get the story. that wrong? You know what I'm saying? Like it's felt like that crazy, like the falling of the West, the gangs breaking up, a lot of the same themes, but yeah. kind of the same heart too, where I was like, this makes me want to replay Red Dead too. I think the Western that that type of stuff always makes me think of is Unforgiven by Clint Eastwood, 92. Because it's sort of, I don't know, my point of bringing up the whole like movies have only existed after the West thing is around Altman in the 70s through the 80s, 90s with Clint coming up and becoming a director and doing his movies. The Western got like a lot more caustic and obviously self-aware and it's like sadder and darker, although I think those impulses have always been there from the beginning. You see Westerns from the 1940s that have the same attitudes because like everything had already happened. Love the acting, I think, is such a key part of this. Like, obviously, you got Brad Pitt as Jesse James. Good form. Best ever Casey Affleck, for sure. Like, Manchester by the Sea, great movie, great performance, great Oscar win. But he's just so perfect as Bob Ford, even down to just like the fact that he's the kid brother of the Sam Rockwell character, and it's like Casey Affleck, Ben Affleck's younger brother. He's just so mannered and annoying <laughs> and kind of pathetic, but you feel for him at the same time. And there's these exchanges like when they're all at the Ford house and Jesse's there and they're all like at dinner and they're kind of measuring themselves against each other. It's just a great, great, great actor's movie, I think. All the movies yeah. of the gang. Casey Affleck's a weird little guy. There's a bunch of like people popping up that are, obviously I don't know all the actor names, but you're like, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. Yeah, the like, one that always gets those. me is like Jeremy Renner. You're like, what the fuck is Jeremy Renner doing here? Ah. Yeah, and he's good too. It's, yeah. like, I, I, it's funny always seeing a Marvel person either pre or post where it's like, oh, you're a good actor. Why do you do that? 
But then it's like, no, I get it. Like the bag is the bag. Fair is fair. At the same time, it's like, wait, you're actually not a bad actor. Why do you do that? And I feel like everybody was really good. Little jokes in the beginning. It has good comedy too. A lot of good little jokes and comedy written throughout. Definitely one worth the cast. The cast has to kind of carry it. Some people are miscast. Like if Pitt doesn't do so good. If Casey Affleck is probably the biggest one. Or if he isn't such a just weirdo, like it'd be so hard to get into it, I think. The name that I want to shout, I actually just had to look it up, is Paul Schneider, plays Dick Little, who is kind of like the Playboy yeah. guy. <laughs> I think that he just has such a good presence as the most modern and eloquent, romantic kind of dude. Just a big contrast to like Rockwell, for instance, who's kind of dopey, playing the older Ford brother. All the costumes, just everything just really brings you into this thing but again it just still feels maybe i just think this because nick cave and warren ellis did the score nick cave also has like a cameo where he's playing an acoustic guitar singing about jesse james getting murdered it just has that feeling like an old country album to me but it just tells this big epic story that we've already said is kind of like muted and not very climactic just great to me this is probably my second favorite of the four i think just really awesome to see it on 35 millimeter too because it's so gorgeous it's definitely fourth for me but that's not a bad thing yeah 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 for you these are all hitters all right i got a question for you so this movie was nominated for cinematography oscar as was no country for old men both shot by roger deakins and they both lost to there will be blood which was shot by robert elswit so for you which one of those three there will be blood jesse james or no country for old men has the best cinematography which one would you vote for I think I'd probably go James, No Country, then There Will Be Blood. I think that's right for me, too. I think I would go James, There Will Be Blood, and then No Country last. Not an indictment, I just think it's sort of like James is the more memorable and visual of the two Deacons ones. I appreciate the cinematography in No Country seeing it this time in the theater. Mm. And I guess I need to see There Will Be Blood in the theater, too. Yeah. But that's not what stands out the most to me about There Will Be Blood. To me, it's obviously more... Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. is like the biggest part of why that movie is good. Mm. Whereas for the other two, I think the cinematography is more important. I can see that. It is a really gorgeous movie. There's certain shots of like that oil derrick going up at night yeah, yeah, where it's yeah. just like on fire. And it is just, uh, yeah, yeah. No loose proposition. All three of those are great. Yes. Even, even some of the other things like Diving Bell and the Butterfly that were nominated would have been great wins in most years. So yeah, that's Jesse James. Any other thoughts on that one? One little tangent before I forget before we go on the other movies. Deacons, I say 2011, yeah, he won the American Society of Cinematographers Lifetime Achievement Award. And like the president said, the preeminent cinematographer of time. And that was in 2011. So yeah. that's before Blade Runner, Prisoners, Sicario, and 1970. Yeah. Which it's like, so he was already, you know, seen as one of the best ever. And then oh, let me just add four more really good ones too. <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm sure he'll still give us a couple more. So it's like, he's just running up the score at this point. With bigger movies and more complicated works, I think, which we'll get into a little bit with Blade Runner. An interesting comment that he made was that he thought that Skyfall was a little bit more technically challenging or or Oh, Skyfall too. I forgot to say that. Yeah. That's five crazy movies to do within a decade. I'm really curious to rewatch Skyfall. I've been kind of in the mood to go back to it, but I also don't really want to watch it out of sequence with the other Bond movies, but I might do it anyway. But I'm, I'm just kind of in the mood because of the, the Deacon stuff to just be like, all right, what's the deal? I haven't seen this in a long time. And you also, what was the other one that you and I were talking about? Not Road to Perdition, Jarhead was the other one. Yeah, I was saying that I like Jarhead a lot. Jarhead, I think you could draw some pretty clear parallels visually 
between Jarhead and Sicario, which was the movie that we saw on Friday. Then even new film. The desert shots, kind of, yeah. And the, just the military of it all. Just, you know, obviously the characters are mostly CIA and FBI, but a lot of it takes place on Air Force bases or military installations. A lot of uniform individuals. And then I think what makes it really pop, and it's a big contrast to Jesse James, is it's not on film. It's a digital movie. And as a digital movie, there's not a lot that I think are better to look at, like where they do a good job of capturing texture and light and shadow. But where the digital just is the personality of Sicario, because it's like this procedural government agencies, tactics, modern technology, like it's just a perfect usage of that type of cinematography, I think, compared to Jesse James, which is more lyrical and poetic. Yeah, I feel like the digital versus film, it just depends on the movie style. Like Sicario is better being shot in digital than film to me. Yeah. Like I think some of those shots you get, obviously the famous one that like, 40 seconds of them walking in the desert, the soldiers, and like it's dusk. Like that shot, like I don't think that would have looked as good in film. It wouldn't want to be able to capture it in the like the way those colors were just popping. It's hard for me to think like it would look bad, but it would add this romantic look that wouldn't fit what Sicario's trying to do. Yeah. It would make them feel like intrepid warriors going off to fight in some glorious battle at sunset. It worked in like a 70s version of Sicario. Uh, yeah, in a it was modern like day. peck and paw and really dirty maybe, but I like that it feels so cold. It feels like a bunch of predators prowling around in the desert that you're watching because it switches then to like night vision and thermal vision. And so you feel like you're just out there with these wolves in the desert and it's really kind of foreboding in a way that I don't really think the celluloid would capture. I think it would look too conventionally pretty or something. There's just kind of a distanced quality to this movie. That's like both its identity and kind of a thing that bugs me about it. I, I This for me is like probably my most controversial take of these four movies because I love three of them and I like this one, but I don't love it. And I think a lot of that just kind of comes down to the fact that like, you know, the plot of Sicario is that it's about the drug war with the cartels in Mexico and the CIA is doing their operations down there. And they have to do this with the joint participation of the FBI, which in this movie is represented by Emily Blunt. And I've always just kind of found her character to be a little naive for what this movie is. I think it's kind of at its best when it's Brolin and Del Toro just being like the seediest buddy cop movie of all time in the back of the fucking cop car sticking his finger in John Bernthal's ear. Yeah, I definitely, I get that. It's almost like two... You can almost do two separate movies where it's just Emily Blunt's character, or it could be just on them two, and it'd be a lot darker movie. So it's like trying yeah. to mix those two, and I think it does it well, but I could see where you could like want more versus the other. I think this might be the bleakest Denny Villeneuve movie to me, which is not <laughs> its not an easy belt to grab. I don't know. I feel like Arrival is more like... I feel like has like some jokes and funny moments. I don't oh, know if Arrival really has any. I see what you're saying. I just mean like the bleakness, like the way that it ends where oh, okay. everything is just kind of the status quo. Nothing about this is ever going to get better. Oh, it's very much like this is how shit is. You know what I mean? It's like, oh. Yeah. yeah. It's outlook on the real world is the bleakest, which... Like, one of his movies is Polytechnique, which is about a school shooting, so... Yeah. It's, it's whatever his bleakest movie is, it's a high... Or, like, Prisoners. No, you're right, where it's, like, same shit, different day. She just went on this crazy ride, but for Brolin and Del Toro, like, that's just part of the game, like, they'll move on. 
Yeah. That's just what they do. I fucking love Brolin in this. Brolin's kind of my guy. I love his flip-flops and how he's just kind of like smirking. He's like, you gotta learn to sleep on planes. But then there's, you know, obviously these moments of like real intensity and violence with him. Yeah, whenever he punches the shit out of Emily, but when she comes and hits her out the <laughs> tunnel, it's like, oh God. Even the on her, he's like, calm down. It's like, oh shit. Yeah. yeah. Stop moving. Yeah. No, Stop he's, moving. Two of the movies were obviously centered out of him. He's such an underrated actor to me. He I can agree. do comedy well. He can do straight serious. He can even make fucking Marvel movies good by being fan. Like, he can do whatever. Like, yeah. He makes those movies, at least Infinity War and Endgame, good because he's so good. His voice yeah. acting in that, he has an all time voice. Yeah. And then even in Dune, I fucking love him in Dune. I can't yeah. wait to yeah, see yeah. him in part two come back. He has like that speech where they go charge out in the ships in Dune. And I'm like, all right, let's fucking go. Ready to run through a wall. He's really good at having physical command he's obviously like a big guy and he looks intimidating or can look intimidating and he's great at playing that for a laugh or playing that for your amusement like in Cohen brothers movies and things or in pta's inherent vice where he's playing the detective and just like fucking shrieking at joaquin phoenix he's gonna be one where he's how old is bro how do you know how old Roland is? he's gotta be like 50 50 something yeah yeah because he's one to me... 55? Okay, so we got another 20 years at least of him still making movies, I would say. And like him being as like a grandfather or like a senior citizen, <laughs> he's going to yeah. get like a best actor in like his 60s or 70s for some grandfather role. He's to me or like any age of his... Maybe I should go watch one of his younger movies too. But like he's definitely been killing it in this middle age, but I think he'll be great as an older actor too, like a Brian Cox or something. For sure. Love his interplay with Del Toro. I do think Del Toro is probably the impression that you make with this movie. Like, just his character is so interesting. Perfectly cast. I don't think anyone else could have done that character as well as he did. A friend of mine, Morgan, who's been on this show before, I think put it really well, where he's just like, he just annihilates the idea of good and evil in this movie. Like, he'll just, he'll do anything to anybody. He's got, like, a code of ethics, but it's just his. But at the same time, like, He's around people that are definitely more vile than he is. And it's just kind of this murky world that these characters are wading through. He has a soft spot for Emily Bunn's character because I think he says he reminds me of someone where I think he reminds her of her daughter. <laughs> but that does not stop him from, from putting shooting a gun her. in her face no, or literally shooting her. When he, shoots her, shoots her. Yeah. Her. When he she points the gun at him when they come out of the tunnel, he's like, don't you ever fucking point a gun at him? It's like, you know what? Fair. You know, it's like, I didn't even get mad. Like, you know what? This movie ends with her pointing a gun at him from the balcony. You almost expect him to, like, snap or something. No, but I never did because it's like, he knows that she wasn't going to do it. It's almost like he's not someone to be caught off guard. Hmm. He's almost expected that reaction. I love that ending scene. Whenever she's like, come on, do it. You'd be killing yourself. And then as he points the gun up to her bottom of her head, perfectly timed and just like his hand movements where it's like, mm. no, like, what do you mean? Like, no, you'd be killing me. <laughs> I would not be killing myself. She's just a dog toy in this movie, to be honest. From the very beginning, she's being misled, manipulated, told one thing, led to another place. Oh, you know who else we got to shout in this movie is Daniel Kaluuya. Because you can almost forget that he's in here. Because this is before Get Out. It's before, you know, he kind of hit it big. But he has such an incredible presence in this movie, actually. He's like even her moral compass, where he wouldn't let her get too off the beaten path. He's her friend. Like, he's trying to make sure, like, he's like, oh, tell us where I walk. And it's like, oh, we don't care. Like, and then she's like, I'll walk too. But she needs that balance yeah, for yeah. him. Uh, yeah, he's great. Very funny. You can see why I'm sure 
Peter probably had watched Sicario. I want to know if he's been asked that. It's like, how did you get, did you watch Sicario and then got Kalia for Get Out? Does that make sense? <laughs> he had done some stuff, but it's all mostly English. This is basically like his Hollywood USA debut. For yeah, Kalia. so it would make sense to me that Peel literally saw Sicario and was like, been thinking about making Get Out. It's like, hmm, I wonder if I can get him to do it. That would make so much sense to me. Mm. I think one of the things that throws me is that uh, Chris is an adult and get out that character, but then this character's like, you know, a full ass, like he was in the police, now he's in the FBI, so he's like an adult, adult. And Chris has always struck me as younger. When I go back and I watch Get Out, I look at Kaluuya and I'm like, damn, he looks so young here. This is two years earlier and I look and I'm like, that is a man. I don't know what that no, is. No, yeah, you're if right. Makeup or get what, Out one, he looks or just like, the way that he's behaving. He's like maybe 25 or 26, but this one, he seems like a 30-year-old guy. Yeah, even though it's earlier. His background, they said it's like, he did two tours in Iraq, former military, yeah. and then got his law degree at UNC and is now in the FBI. And I think he was a cop too, right? Oh, did, was it a cop? I thought it was just the military thing. So he is the partner or friends with Bernthal, and I thought that they were like cops oh, together. Or maybe, maybe they were in the military together. Maybe they just know I, see, I don't think it I says. Don't maybe the military thing makes sense, actually. That might be, because it's like, oh, he's an old friend. I do actually... That's like the peak of the Emily Blunt stuff for me. It's actually, there's two. One of them is the Bernthal scene where they get into the fight over the jelly band and the gun and like he's fucking choking her out on the floor and everything. And then the other one is the border crossing sequence where she's in the back of the car. She's with all the CIA guys and the army dudes. They're trying to extract one particular cartel member, bring him north of the border, and they're expecting to get attacked once they're at the border crossing where they get stuck in traffic. They identify these two cars full of cartel guys, and they basically just have this. I always sort of remember it more tense, like more as a standoff. And then every time I watch it, I'm like, no, it's kind of just a slaughter. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> they kind of just surround the cars and then shoot them to death. Yeah. <laughs> In your head, you're like saying the guys, like, don't try. There's zero chance you can win this. And then, of course, yeah, they just get smoked. Her almost getting killed by the police yeah. officer, and she kills the guy. Yeah, Mexican yeah. state police. Yeah, cool movie. Uh, I just have notes i don't know why it's like weird picky shit that i think a little bit too much of it revolves around these like emotional revelations whereas i just kind of want to stop that and get into the weeds and i guess the end of this movie is kind of where it does that for me where we're with benicio del toro's character as he's with the cop and we're going into mexico to try to find the cartel leader and it's, it's that revenge quest that's probably my number one favorite scene of this movie is just him driving through the night, just getting to be right with him as he's doing all this shit right at the end of the film. Yeah, I feel like it's a movie where I don't think anyone would say it's bad if you do, you're done. But I think it's like either people are like you on it, where it's like solid, you know, three, three and a half, or they're like me, or it's like four and a half. Like it's a classic. I sent it to you that I listened to True and On podcast, and they did interview a Mexican professor who writes about the violence of the cartels and mm. more against the US side of it. And they talked about Sicario for like 10 minutes or so, where he was against it, where he's like, it's a well-made movie, but I'm watching it. And he didn't agree with like the way it portrays the violence and kind of like, there's the one line of the guy that they're going to Juarez and he's like, welcome to the jungle or whatever. And it's like, I noticed like that particular line to me was like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. But, so, but anything else in there didn't feel like out of touch or wrong to me. A little traumatized, maybe, like when you're seeing like the bodies hang off the interstates, but nothing that's outside of reality. Nothing that hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's Villeneuve's sensibility. He's not a very pulpy director. Did you ever see the sequel to this, Day of the Soldado? Yeah. And like, that's just kind of more of a straight up, like, trash. That's thriller. the bad version. Yeah. That's the bad <laughs> version of this movie. Yeah. 
There's a I good version and a bad version. Villeneuve's whole sensibility is like the guy who made Polytechnique, which is about a school shooting. Even Blade Runner has those sensibilities. I think here, it almost feels like a documentary, which I think is the importance of Deacon shooting it a little bit. You just feel like you're watching as close to reality as you can get within the bounds of entertainment and a thriller. I'm not sitting here saying like it is documentary, like fact, 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 but I find it to be like much more reserved than something like Narcos on Netflix, which yeah, just kind of gets sure. a little more explosive and melodramatic. That's kind of the middle. Like I think that's like decent, but not as good as this, but not as trashy as Day of the Soldado. Yeah, no, all of Deacons and Denis, both of them separately and together, their movies feel grounded in realism. That's nothing unbelievable. That, I think, takes us to the next movie, Saturday, No Country for Old Men, my personal favorite of this selection, the Best Picture winner of 2007, although we already discussed it lost cinematography, though it was nominated. So the Coens won, but Deacons did not win. Actually, I don't know, I think there will be Blood Might have won for Direction that year, I can't quite remember, and I'm not going to look it up because it's not that important. No Country for Old Men interesting note about that of course is that it's an adaptation of a cormac mccarthy novel and just after we saw this sadly he passed away at the age of 89 yeah i don't know if you happen to see that did you have you ever read this i have not i need to yeah it's good read not my favorite mccarthy necessarily i'm a bigger fan of like the road and blood meridian but this is a fucking phenomenal (laughs) adaptation to me even before you get into like the deacon's end of it which is what we're here to talk about it's just such a great realization, particularly of the 1980s in Texas, of those three characters, Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones, Lou Ellen Moss, played by Josh Brolin, and Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem. Great cast of side characters to fill out the different places that we go to in the movie. And then it's just kind of this mix of like violence and poetry and like Cohen's comedy nihilism mixing with Cormac McCarthy's more brooding nihilism but putting them together in a way that feels organic and human and really funny and really tense and just a movie that like I think I used to love it but not think that it was the greatest thing ever and then just over time it's just a great damn movie I just feel like it's almost universal or really close to it we actually saw this you had a couple friends come with us mm-hmm. to this screening how did they think about it have they seen it before yeah yeah my friend and his fiance and yeah, of course, the guy, you know, he's, it's very much a dad movie or a guy movie in a lot of ways. But he, of course, is like, oh, I've watched that 10 times on TV. It's one of the, I see it, I'm not going to turn the channel. And my brother said the same thing, like, oh, yeah, I've watched that a ton of times. And so, yeah, he loved it and she didn't like it, I think. Oh. I'm trying to remember what the reason she said, or she liked it. She said it's a good movie, it's just not for her. Yeah, I got that. It is like a violent and intense movie yeah the violence and the intensity aren't her flow but she obviously said it's look good i love the way that the coen brothers approach that have you seen burn after reading i've not okay i won't explain any further but there's been a clip going around of burn after reading which includes a death and it's a great example if you know burn after reading you should know what i'm talking about and in no country for old men it's less comedic it's less slapstick although there are still some funny ones i think it's the way that the violence happens in like a fraction of a second and then a guy hits the dirt and it's very realistic it makes it very shocking but without i think deacons actually used this comparison during our q a it's not tarantino where you've got like the fucking blood spurting up it's not just that it's realistic it's that it has this impact one of the first things that you see is Shigura's been locked up. He's in there with the cop and he's fucking like 
choking him out with the handcuffs and you just kind of see it all happen very quickly and that's probably like the most drawn out yeah and there's that cut to him where he has the grin oh yeah he's like smiling <laughs> which i don't think any of the times he really is like smiling that one he's like grinning as he's choking this guy out yeah you just get this deranged sensibility to him i think that's such a great little representation of what the whole movie is like and what the whole movie is about it takes place in 1980 in texas this guy anton Chigurh, has been arrested he's in the police office he's got the handcuffs behind his back and the cops on the line he's like no i got him sheriff i'm gonna put him in the lockup right now and at the time that it takes him to say that he's slipped the handcuffs around his leg and chokes this guy out and the message of that to me throughout this movie is like these yokels don't have a fucking clue what's coming for them like they're just kind of stuck in this way of life that they don't really realize how the world around them is evolving. And it actually kind of connects to Sicario because the conflict here is very much cartel drug traffic related. Yes. Jesse James, No Country, and Sicario could all be in the same universe and it would work. Yeah. They all feel real because they all feel like they could happen in our universe. They kind of progress. It's the end of the classic West. It's the progression through the 20th century here in the 80s. And then Sicario is like the modern into the future. And then Blade Runner is the future. <laughs> they all kind of go together. I really loved getting to visit this, actually, in between Jesse James and Sicario for that reason. And it just puts a lot of these pieces together. I think the cinematography is like less standout here than either Jesse James or Sicario or Blade Runner, which is the next one. But there isn't a single frame of it that isn't gorgeous. And this is something that I actually kind of took away more from the Q&A than from this watch of the film. Did you happen to notice when we were listening to that Q&A? I feel like Roger Deakins never talked about images. He never really talked about like, yeah, and so I lit the scene this way to create this kind of effect, this kind of thing. He talked about characters over and over and over again. He talked about people. He talked about emotions. He talked about wanting to achieve the director's vision, which I think leads to in Jesse James with such a visual director to a visual film. But when he's working with the Coen brothers, who are these screenwriters, it's all about character, it's all about ideas, and they're really like filmmakers that are incredibly well-rounded. I think the cinematography here is about people. It's about the emotions of Tommy Lee Jones' character, Sheriff Bell, going through the things that he's going through. Or the scene that I think of a lot near the very, very, very end when Shigura confronts Roland's widow, played by a uh, oh, fuck Scottish actress. Is she the same one that's in Pinchy's Industry? Is that the same? No, that's cool. No, that's Carrie Condon. What else was she? Wasn't she in one of these movies? I'm tripping. The other movie that I think of her from is Train Spotting, and she's very, very young in Train Spotting. It's uh, Kelly McDonald, Scottish okay. actress. So she's also the voice of Merida in Brave, the Pixar film. Oh, the red haired girl. <laughs> she's Scottish, but fucking her yeah. Texas accent was great. On point. All the Texas accents in this film are fucking perfect but the scene at the very end when sugar confronts her and they have that final exchange it's just in the way that you see him in the chair he's in the shadow he's got this little smirk she just looks tired she just looks defeated by all of this yeah her husband's dead her mom just died like she doesn't really have anything all the money that this was about is gone that's why like she doesn't even care that he's gonna kill her and like if anything, it pisses me off. It makes sense, but he, the character, him himself angers me because she's like, all right, do the coin. And then she was like, no, I'm not going to call it because ultimately you make the choice. And that's right. And he ultimately still makes the choice to kill yep. her. 
But then it's like, how are you going to make the choice like to not kill the guy at the gas station because it landed right, but then you're going to kill her because she wouldn't call your coin? Like, that doesn't make sense to me as far as, like, the morals of this character. Uh, it makes sense for the film, but I'm saying, like, as, like, the moral compass inside of his head, yeah. like, you're violating your thing. I do think from the novel to the film, that is probably the biggest significant change, and it's probably the weakest, is that Shigur is a very principled person. He has a very weird but defined code of ethics to everything that he does, which Woody Harrelson even says in this film when he meets up with Roland south of the border. But it's definitely like simplified here, and I think in the movie he kind of represents more of like a force of nature than that kind of principled individual. He represents almost like nihilistic destruction, which for me actually kind of connects if you've seen Fargo or even all the way back to Raising Arizona. In Fargo, it's that Grimsrud character played by Peter Stormare, who represents this soulless violence. And I think they're making, the Coen brothers are making that connection between that earlier film and this one. But in doing that, they are simplifying Shigur a bit. I think what works about it for me and what is so compelling to watch is that the middle of this movie is just Llewellyn, Shigur going at each other to the best of their ability. And it's really like detailed. It's a lot of stuff like using the coin to unscrew the vent shaft in the hotel room. It's using the tent poles to put them all together to get the briefcase out of there, sawing off the shotgun. But a lot of movies wouldn't have shown him going to the gun store. Right. He just would have showed up with the shotgun in that. Right. And he just would have got the suitcase in the room. It wouldn't have shown you putting the ten poles together. That's an attention to detail from the Coen brothers doing that. That's why the shit like the tracker in the money case works so well. Because you're like, yeah, I guess he didn't find it. They hid it well enough that he didn't look for it that closely. He didn't find it. And it led him to getting caught these times. Because if you don't think of every little detail, this guy's going to find you. <laughs> or somebody's going to find you. Yeah. You have to pitch a perfect game. It's not even Sugar that kills them. It's the Mexican guys that had the tracker. Right. Yeah, they had a second one. So I guess there's just a second one in the case. I don't know if there's a second one in the case. They had a second little beep, 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 beep tracker to find the one in the case, which is how they get to him at the motel. Yeah, but remember he got rid of the tracker whenever him and Bardem had that shootout on the border. Yeah, they found him through the family because they were following the mother. And the grandma. Oh, yeah. And they had asked, where are you going? Yeah. yeah and, yep, he, and, yep. and the guy said, El Paso. Because yep. the mother is not smart. Yep. And so, of course, I got there you go. cancer. Yeah, the other detail thing that I always think of, it's one of my favorite little bits of this movie. And it is a great cinematography little tracking shot. Is when you see Shigur blow up that blue car outside oh, of the Oh, yeah. That's all time, yeah. Just throwing the cotton ball lid on the top of it, drenching the shirt, lighting it up. And just the way that you follow him and we're just stuck on him as the explosion and all the characters go to that. Again, the details. Perfectly directed. What would have shown you light the cotton ball, put that in? A lot of stuff, it just would have cut to him walking away and then explodes. Right. It's that showing you and like pacing and all that showing those slight details. That's yep. so great with Coen Brothers and Deacons. I think this movie is a good example of how you could do the Sicario stuff on film and still make the mood work because this is on film, but it still has this kind of like dreary coldness to it in a way where you just kind of feel, and it really, really comes in in that last part of the movie where it becomes more Tommy Lee Jones than anything. He's kind of the lead character. He's kind of the last guy standing at that point. 
and <laughs> yeah, it just kind of gets somber on you. I don't know. Really beautiful film. I think it goes from this great noir western thriller, probably would be a five star movie, but then it really, really takes a step up. I think once it just kind of becomes him, and it's more about how this one case or this one sheriff just kind of told him, I've had enough. I'm old. <laughs> I've had enough. And I love that scene that yeah. he has with the older cop that's in the wheelchair. That I think is his brother. Is it a brother? I don't know. I didn't look it up. But I'm yeah. Like I'm sure. it, you get the feeling like Tommy Lee Jones' character's father is dead. Because he says, like, daddy, yeah. And it's like, so I'm thinking, assuming the way he was talking about his dad. You remember when daddy told us this? So it seems I like think that's he's saying your daddy. If I recall correctly, I think that guy is a former deputy that worked for his father. But I don't know. I don't really remember. The point is more about just like, you know, that march of time. You're getting older. I am older. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're looking older than I am. Javier Bardem won for supporting, and then yep. Casey Affleck was actually nominated for just yep. I probably would have gotten Casey there, but I can't really argue with the result. I guess watching these two, actually, Javier Bardem and Del Toro, I think you actually could switch in both those movies and it would mm. work. In fact, they're the only two that could have done those roles, though. I could see Del Toro doing Shigur better than I could see Bardem doing yes. the Sicario character. For sure. Because but I think they both could work. I think Shigur depends on a presence of malice, which Del Toro could pull off. Although, there's something to how mannered Bardem plays him. You know, definitely that haircut, the way that he looks. He never seems like a Wayne Grow in heat or somebody that's like over the edge. He seems very like put together and professional and intelligent. That's what makes him so scary. Oh, they won for No Country, the Coen Brothers won. For director? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that they did, and that's right. I think that's actually correct. I think I would give them director even over PTA. I think you could make the argument that like PTA on a shot-by-shot, like how, like where he's placing the camera, the way that that film came out. But what makes No Country so fucking superb is those three lead performances, and then the fact that every minor character is also perfectly performed. When Shigur goes to see the woman in the trailer park office, she's like, sir, I already told you we can't give out no information. (laughs) All that shit is just pitch perfect. Or, you know, the gas station scene, which I think is like probably the most famous scene of this movie that everybody, you know, can quote and everything like that. Just the dialogue is written for those characters, the care that goes into getting those performances and making them feel like some dude you and I ran into in West Texas. The Born Ultimatum winning film editing over No Country and There Will Be Blood is a crime. Yeah, that's not correct. That's kind of crazy. (laughs) It's just not right, is it? So which of those two, between No Country and There Will Be Blood, which one's best picture for you? Probably There Will Be Blood, I think. Hmm. Not a wrong answer. That's like two very hard tens, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm going to say probably. That's even without me watching There Will Be Blood in a theater. So I imagine once I do that, it'll probably be for sure that. I think There Will Be Blood kind of comes off a little better because of just like the imagery and just it has this grand tone to it that makes it feel very great, really significant, really like best of all time. I think No Country is like, for a movie that's so universally loved, I think it's pretty fucking low key in a lot of ways, but just it gets me so involved to the machinations of everything that's going on and these characters are sense of place and time and then just again that ending just kind of takes it to this next emotional level it just feels like one of the best book to screen adaptations i've ever seen for sure just 
perfectly captures everything that like McCarthy's about and everything that that story's about. To the point that this was probably the easiest screenplay that they ever wrote, because all you really had to do is take the novel and just go make it, which they basically did. Good for them. Cool movie for them to win the Oscar on. I think it's going to go down as one of the best best picture winners of that decade, along with Return of the King will stay popular forever. But I think No Country will be kind of the one of those winners that just endures and endures, and people revisit and remember that it's really exciting, really funny, and really gripping, great filmmaking. Yes, yes. I've already Any, started uh, looking at the Blade Runner stuff. I was going to say, we're going from my favorite movie of the four to, I think, your favorite movie of these four, right? Listen, 2049 might be my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Easily the movie I've rewatched the most as an adult. As a kid, it's probably Revenge of the Sith, but like as an adult, I rewatched Blade Runner once every like, couple of months. To give a little bit of a picture of how we saw these movies on Thursday, we saw this in the Texas Theaters Upstairs Auditorium, which is like 150 to 200 seats. It's not very big. It's a little bit more wide, and that's where they project on film in that theater. The other three we all saw in the Downstairs Theater, which is about 600 to 700 seats. And for Sicario, probably about half, maybe a little less than half. I think for No Country, which was a Saturday 4 o'clock show, probably again about half. I think it had a little bit more than Sicario did. And then Blade Runner, which was on Sunday at 5 and had the Q&A afterwards, sold out screening. And they also sold out the upstairs auditorium where they also were showing and then did a simulcast of the Q&A that was downstairs. So just like lying down black, packed as fuck, <laughs> we were sitting kind of off to the side. More than I usually would in that theater, for sure. I didn't know Blade Runner had a pull like that. Obviously, I had a big factor as a Q&A part. They show the 1982 Blade Runner at that theater and at like Alamo Draft House and everything around here, I think just about once a year, maybe once every other year. I have seen Blade Runner at the Texas Theater, and that is usually a very popular show. So I do think that there's like a love of... Both those films, yeah. Yeah, both of those, just... The vibe. And getting to see them in a theater, I think, is pretty unique, too. Yes, that's my third time seeing Blade Runner in a theater. Now my only wish is I want to see it at Bob Bullock IMAX. Mm, like an IMAX re-release? Yes, that would be, maybe for like 10-year anniversary or something, that'd be very cool. Mm. I've seen it twice at Alamo, maybe three times. I have to go look at my reviews. It's either my third or fourth time seeing it in a theater, all of which were never when it came out. So, Yeah, I saw this in 2017 when it came out. This is my first time seeing it in a theater since then, although not at all my first time seeing it since then. Really kind of shocked how loved the movie is by everyone. It doesn't shock me that it has fans and that it is really well liked by those fans. But it is, you know, we sat there and watched this whole movie. It's like a three hour movie that is slow as shit. And I don't know, I think there is like, uh, I can kind of answer in my head why People let that go with Blade Runner now that it's 40 years old, it's from 1982, versus for this new movie, and because it is a different kind of movie almost entirely than what Blade Runner is, it just surprises me that it has such a universal positive reception. Not a complaint. I think that's fucking awesome. That's true. It just surprises me. I think it speaks to the extreme goodwill that Denis Villeneuve has earned with people throughout the 2010s and his strong run of movies, you know, stuff like Arrival, Sicario, Prisoners, Enemy. And then I think it speaks to Roger Deakins. And it also speaks to how much care went particularly into like the visual effects and into the music and into the soundscape. So that when you watch this, it really just feels like you're getting absorbed into one of the great technical accomplishments of the 2010s, filmmaking-wise. 
I don't think the 2010. I think it's quite easily the best looking film put on. Mm. Anything that has to do with color, maybe there's like a better looking black and white film. But I think of any film that uses color, to me, there's like nothing that like comes close in terms of just like the clarity. Digital was made for this movie. Yeah, color in digital. I might, I might be on there. Maybe there's a better looking movie in film or in black and white. But I think in terms of yeah, animation. Yeah, or animation. You know, I can think of some stuff that definitely like just is able to be a little bit more vibrant and things. But like, New Spider Verse was the best looking animated film I've ever seen. Yeah, right. I was going to say Spider-Verse, Akira, your Ghost in the Shell, obviously all very, actually recently watched Ghost in the Shell. I was kind of like anticipating seeing 2049 in the theater. And it, it's actually funny. So in 2017, Ghost in the Shell got a live action remake, remember, with Scarlett Johansson? Did you yeah. ever see that? No, I did not. I actually haven't either because it looked like fucking It looked shit. bad. I was like, no, I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> it's actually hysterical to me that they made a remake, a live action version of that. While Sony was over here making Blade Runner, which basically is that, but like a hundred fucking times better. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't see 2049 and 2017. Like, I don't know what I was doing that like. So when did it yeah. come out? Fall. It was like September, wow. October, I want to say. I mean, I would have been a freshman in college. I don't know what... Uh... It was a bit of a bomb. But I wonder, like, was it lack of advertising? Like, it feels like I don't remember. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. know. So what I can tell you is Arrival made money. Did you see Arrival in a the theater? Nope. 2049 was the movie, I said during the Q&A, 2049 was the movie that like made me realize, oh, there's movies and then there's film. You know what <laughs> I mean? It was the movie where I was like, oh, this is what a blockbuster should be. It's not like a Transformers or even a Star Wars, much less Star Wars or Star Trek or the Marvel high production and like quality blockbuster should be. It's the way to use CG. It's the way to use all these different new modern technologies to make something that just feels like the biggest, best version of a science. I don't want to call it a fantasy because it is very grounded in science fiction. Oh yeah, remember he said a lot of movies are science fantasy. This is science fiction. And that's not like, I'm not trying to make it sound like Star Wars when I say fantasy. All I mean by fantasy is just that it is like this complete world that exists on film, on, you know, your Blu-ray disc or on the theater screen that you just get to be sucked into the illusion of cinema. I'm just talking about, you know, I, I think this sentence would also apply to Sicario, which is obviously extremely, like, grounded. But there's still a fantasy element to any movie, I think, to a certain degree. Obviously, so when you're talking about, like, robots and AI digital girls and shit like that. I want to quickly say, so I'm a, like, 82 Ridley Scott Blade Runner. That's, like, a top 20 of all time movie for me. It's a movie that long before this came out, I had seen it dozens of times and just was completely head over heels for it. For me, I love this as a sequel to that movie. I love the way that it reflects on that. I love the way it extends it. I have a very similar relationship between another 2017 blockbuster, Empire Strikes Back and The Last Jedi. I have a very, very similar affection level for both where the 80s movie is just like one of my personal all-timer 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 favorites and then i think it's a fucking amazing sequel in a lot of ways the question that i asked during the deacons q a is something that's been on my mind a lot because people on twitter will get into these scuffles over which blade runner they prefer which is a little stupid or people just saying 2049 is overrated which i'm like right shut up right just because something's popular so i have to hate on it people and it's like (laughs) or this thing is just amazing like or or it's just really good i think part of the reason why people have that reaction 
is because they're really different movies. Even though there's a lot of things that we can point to that are the same or similar or about similar ideas or have similar moods, when you watch the 82 movie, it's a dusky, shadowy, noir film. I think that movie uses color exceptionally because it uses shadows so well, where you just see a face that's like half in shadow and half in this crisp blue light on celluloid. But it's a film that was shot on 35 millimeter, and so it's got this particular look and feel. The plot of that movie basically doesn't matter that much. It's very amorphous, and most of the value is in the production design. And no, literally, place. my friend that saw the No Country for Us, he said he tried watching it, the original one, and he was like, mm-hmm. I could not figure out what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. He was like, I didn't really get the plot or like what was going on. I was like, yeah. And he's like, but I love 2049 because they just watched it. The reason they didn't go see this with me is because they had just watched this like a week or so ago. Oh, so like with Blade Runner, the only real thing that's going on, you've got replicants who are rebelling. They've killed the people that were their masters. They've come back to Earth and they're trying to figure out how to survive a little bit longer. You have a detective that's trying to capture them and kill them. That's fucking it. Everything else that happens in that movie is like a machination of that overarching plot and it's like it really is a movie that's more about like the menagerie of characters and settings in the future and how they reflect on these ideas of memories and what makes a person a person and all this different stuff so you get into 2049 and it's way 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 more conventionally plotted because now we can follow along all these little links in the chain of k searching for clues into his own past into clues of what's happened to Deckard since the last movie. I think something that kind of gets me is that it's got that same pacing like the original Blade Runner, but it's Super it's a lot more conventional. And so I think that could be sharpened. I'm not really sure that the pace of it I shouldn't even call it conventional. I think a lot of people don't like it because they say it's too slow. In 2049. Yeah, well, that's what uh-huh. I mean is that I think the plot of K, you know, basically going through the levels of this mystery is pretty normal and is more akin to like seven. David Fincher 7, which is about two hours long, than it is to Blade Runner, which gets to be a little bit more aesthetically inclined. And then I also think that it the two movies for me that stand out as comparisons, and I tried to bait Roger into saying this during the Q&A, or just tell me what his inspirations were. The two that it reminds me of are Spielberg's AI, which is a movie about a little robot boy who believes in the myth of Pinocchio, the fairy tale of Pinocchio, and wants to become a real boy so that his adopted mother will love him. That's the same thing that Kay is doing. He wants to be the real boy, wants to believe that he could be the real boy, blah, blah, blah. And then the other one is Spike Jonze's Her, which is about Joaquin Phoenix dating a cell phone, AI Scarlett Johansson girlfriend. I still need to see Her. Oh, it's so good. I know, I know. So dig this. Her even has a scene where Scarlett Johansson gets a woman to enact having sex with Joaquin Phoenix's character as this AI, just like in Blade Runner, there's the scene where she oh, melts. What? That's crazy. Yeah. It's literally like they are that similar to me. And so the look of 2049, I think, is less shadowy, it's less of a noir, and it looks more like those sci-fi films. And I think what's interesting about it, too, is that there's none of that Spielberg warmth and joy and optimism, and there's none of that Jonesy warm, bubbly infatuation. It's a cold, lonely movie about this guy who is just totally fucking alienated. And I think it's probably one of, in terms of like big popular movies, probably one of the most despondent, sad blockbusters 
I can think of ever seeing. Yes. If you see the dumb Sigma memes talking about K or whatever with the him with the pink lady on there. But it is much more like just like sad and relatable dude. I'm still looking at it right now on the Oscar website. I'm so mad Gosling didn't get nominated for a leading mm. actor. Because I think if the actor is wrong, it's bad. Like he has to be so defeated. I feel like just in general, people hate on roles where you don't have to show emotion and they think that's like because they're not crying or yelling or no action whatever that it's somehow bad acting when i think if anything it's harder to be that like stoic emotionless character and then to then be able to flip it in a moment in the right god damn it with his dream right that build up to that moment and him letting his frustration out in that moment like, I was never a Ryan Gosling guy until I saw this movie. I was like, damn, he's a good fucking actor. This feels to me like an extension of his drive performance. Throughout the 2010s, he started doing these stoic, not just quiet, but like in the movie Only God Forgives, he has like 56 words of dialogue or something crazy like that. And I think this felt like the extension of that, like the kind of the crown jewel version of that type of role as this stoic android character who's clearly hurting but doesn't have any recourse doesn't have any way to like do anything about it i think that you could nominate gosling and driver for the last jedi for 2017 to be honest fucking belter year for blockbusters what else was blockbuster last jedi and this what else was that it last jedi and this would be the two big ones logan was also 2017 oh that is three dunkirk by oh Ellen. god yeah that's four really yeah all four of those are like big time wins for me get out is almost like a blockbuster horror yeah that was definitely like more indie but the box office it was a big smash and kind of led to peel's explosion i've always kind of wanted a little bit more emotion out of k but it works like it works for the tone of the film and i think it's like an exceptionally directed and exceptionally performed role he nails the roboticness so well. I mean, think at the beginning, whenever she's like, I never eliminate something that's been born. Yeah. And like the way he talks and like his facial expressions, mm. like you believe he is a replicant, like not a human. And then like by the end of the movie, you're like, no, but replicants are humans. Or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can see why his madam, Robin Wright's character, would just perfectly trust him to be obedient and do everything that she says. You don't really get the sense of like, he would ever rebel or step out of line or break the rules because he's so obedient and locked into what he's doing. I think there's a great contrast between those two baseline testing scenes. I love that first one so good, man. That long shot it does from behind him and it goes all the way to the thing. That's so good. It was hilarious to me to learn that that was like one of the trickier shots for Deacons and Villeneuve to like figure out how to do because they were just like, well, we don't really... Like, what the fuck are we supposed to do for this baseline testing scene? And that they eventually just came up with the idea of, like, what if we just made it a tiny, all-white room with a thing that he was talking into? It's so loud, too. Yeah, the sound mixing there. Interlink was yelling at you. He's trying to provoke you, right? There's, like, this tone of, like, he's trying to catch you off guard. And then that second scene happens after we've found that wooden horse from the dream sequence. And Kay is failing the test at this point which that performance is really good. Like, just the subtle difference in how he's doing it. It's slower, and yeah. The movie even shows you because you're watching the, like, his swallowing and everything like that. So you're watching it really, really closely. So you can see those little minute 
tells that he's like slipping and cracking and starting to get a little scared. The characters that I love the most in this are Joy and Love. Joy is Ana de Armas as the digital girlfriend, and then Love is the main replicant that works for Nyander Wallace, the Jared Leto character, who's like the bad bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, fucking... Joy could have gotten the best supporting nomination. I just love that character. I feel like if that's a bad performance where she's just like cute and infatuating, the way she just presents herself and acts, it's like, I don't know who, I wouldn't pick anybody else to be that character. There's something alluring to her. And I think that, so I think one of the central questions that this movie poses, just like the original one does without really saying it out loud is to what extent is joy a fully developed and emotional entity like Kay or sapper morton or rachel from the first movie she's not a replicant she's not an android so if we say that all the androids are like human and emotional and everything like that doesn't mean that she is i'm curious what you think do you feel like that character joy is like a full character or do you think it's more like an apparatus that tells Kay what he wants to hear? I don't know, because it, it kind of makes you ask that question with the big pink hologram yeah. one, because it says, you're such a good Joe. Right. But even before that, she says, like, what a tough day. And I remember she had said something similar to that earlier in the movie. And then yeah. whatever Joe. And like, he looks up and has this look on his face like, oh, he becomes locked. Yeah. Almost him realizing that like she was just programming. But I think to me in my head, it almost pushed back on that. Being like, but his joy, also the name being joy is interesting because the way I just said like his joy, because joy was the only joy he had in his life. Mm. I don't know if that was intentional. You know, his job, there's like no happiness in his job, in his life, but he comes home to joy, supposed to make him okay. There's a line from Nyander Wallace, the Jared Leto character, when he's with Deckard and he's like, you all avoid pain, but I know the truth. You love pain. Pain reminds you that the joy that you felt was real. And he goes, more joy then. And that's when he walks out that fake Rachel, the Sean Young kind of like digital copy that is like the best ever use of that kind of technology because it's repulsive. Yeah, was that just face? What was that? So it's an actress. It's not Sean Young. It's a different actress that they digitally made up just like they did with Tarkin or Leia. It looks crazy good. It's so good. It's the best that has ever looked. It's going to be the best that it will ever look. (laughs) Well, and I think the reason why it works is because it's still uncanny. It's like in the context of the scene, you're like, no, this is wrong. This is fucked up that you've done this. Even the way that it ends is really harsh. But I think with Joy, so when I asked that question to Deacons about like the differences in how they're shot and if they had any particular influences outside of Blade Runner, he eventually did say Solaris Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky, yeah. which makes sense. You can kind of see how the pacing of those films really connects and themes and why Villeneuve would be interested in approaching this movie like a Tarkovsky film. And in Solaris, the main kind of gist is that these characters out in space are being visited by these projections based on their memories of people that they knew. So this guy meets a version of his wife that's entirely based on his memory. And there is an open question throughout that movie of like, is this new entity full and realized and human, just like Joy. And so I think from a visual perspective, just of how Deacons captures her on camera, he's provoking you to ask that question, regardless of what the conclusion is. He's just asking, where does a person get their soul? You know, is it about being born or is it something else? And I just think it's one of the most 
complex explorations of that in the movie because it's not what the movie is about. Because it's just something that's sort of happening. It's like the her side story within a whole of the movie. Yeah, exactly. She feels like she is a character because I think almost to me the way your post interpreted the way I interpret it is that the joys have the same programming, but then they're like an AI that can form their own personality after they're with their own. There's like a baseline of what the joys are, but then that joy has been with him for so long. She's like, how many times have you told me this story? And right. then her saying, I love you, she's about to get stopped. Where that feels real, if it's real for him and real for her, then how can you not call it real? Yeah, no, that's a great point. The one that kind of gets me is when he first gives her the emanator, how like Happy. fucking ecstatic she is to just be like dancing around freely. Yeah, that shows you it's not just like programming. That it has like a reaction. And they go out onto the roof, right? And he walks out in front of her. He's walking out towards that sign. She's way behind him. And before he's ever looking at her, she's like mystified. She's like, holy shit, I'm getting rained on. I'm glitching out. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. That sequence is crazy with the rain on her hand. Oh, man. It's so I don't even know good. how they, the visual effects people for this movie or something else. Because it's like, how does that even, how do you even do that? But none of her reaction is for him. Like, he doesn't see her reacting, so it's just her having her own feelings and emotions. It's not a performance. Coming to reality moment, yeah. I, even kind of the scene with her and the Mackenzie Davis android that she melds with, that sex scene, basically, that feels like her. It feels like, you know, she wanted to do this because I want to reach out and connect with you, not just to, like, gratify this guy. Like, it doesn't really feel like something that he would have asked for or thought up. It's something that she thought up. Well, also, did it almost seem like routine? Because she doesn't say anything. She comes in and she stands there. And then she says, all right, well, go ahead and do it. You ever think about that? How like? I've, no, it seemed like a first time thing for me. No, no. I think that means that like that's a thing in that world mm, of like a whore or a prostitute going. Oh, I see what you're saying. She goes, takes off her jacket or whatever. All right, do your thing. And then she starts moving around. She's like, right, hold up. I'm trying to sink. And it's like, oh, wait, right. no, this is a thing that's happened before. This is not like a one-off. The joy doing that, well, is that within her programming? Or is that the joy, that joy specifically doing that? Because it almost seems like it's part of the programming. It's almost like there's steps to the joy of how to like satisfy the owner. And it's at first mm. being in the house, then it's maybe going wherever they need them to. And then it's even that that's the last step is by mm. weird holographic sex. I think I didn't notice that as much until this time when she says, like, All right, hurry up. And you saying that of her, like, initiating it? Because what if that's just part of her? The whole is like, is she a character? Because that's just part of her program. Was she always going to do that? Mm. Almost that, like, if he, Ryan Gosling, didn't show someone of an interest into her, then she still would have got to there eventually. Because even when he's talking to Mackenzie in the market, the, like, thing beeps. Like, she goes yeah, off. you hear the tone. Yeah. So isn't that her activating because like she's listening and is like jealous? That's why I took it as. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting moment. You see Mackenzie, who turns out to be like a member of this resistance for whatever that's worth by the end of the movie, where she like tells Joy off. She's like, I've been inside of you and there's not as much there as you think. That's a bar. And I'm like, that's oof. But it's just one of those interesting, enduring questions of the movie, I think, because you can kind of build the case either way. I think there's enough support on either side. It's more interesting to me to imagine this as a thinking, learning thing, even if she does have some programming, even if, you know, it's not the same thing as like a human. These movies are more interesting for the way that they sort of suppose that 
technology and experience memory can be as human as you know human birth human living and that's what gives everything its charge that's why it matters that this guy's like out here assassinating other androids like him just a gorgeous movie this was loud as shit in theaters it's always yeah, yeah, yeah just fucking explosive music sound mix they talked about it a bunch in the q a and the one question i wanted to ask that i forgot to i didn't think of it until other people ask questions when they're talking about that mixing scene i should have asked it because to me that's like the craziest visual moment of the movie and i was like totally oh but other people probably don't think that's as cool as me so i'm glad other people thought it was cool i think if you're looking like frame by frame and i need to like break it down one time but like it kind of switches as to whose face you're seeing it's almost yes, like, remember that yes. dress thing? Is it yellow? Oh, or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. It's almost like that. Like, who are you seeing in that moment? But I yeah. think this time, I finally noticed that at the end, when she's walking towards, you see Anna Moss's face. Yeah. You get a mix. Like, you will literally see, you will literally see Mackenzie Davis's eye pop out of the fog or her eyebrow or her little bangs. You can see both of them. And it's really pronounced. When it's not just the face, when it's the hands, of course, you have like the two sets of hands. Oh, that looks so cool, though. You can almost tell who's who with the hands. Mackenzie is taking off a tank top, so she's lifting it from the bottom, whereas Dearmas is taking off a dress over the shoulders, and so they're like opposite, but synced up at the same time. That shit's so cool. You know, this is (laughs) just in terms of how this science fiction film represents modern culture. It's like deepfake technology. It's like deepfake reswap AI shit. Where you take a fucking GIF and swap a face over the top of it. It's literally what that scene looks like in the way that it's uncanny and weird and kind of wrong. But I also love how sensual that scene feels, even though it is kind of like freaky mutant sci-fi shit. It's kind of like Cronenberg almost, but it still feels intimate and sexual in a way that works and isn't creepy. Yeah, or he... Like, obviously, it takes him a sec to get into her, like, but he wants it too. Or, like, because it's like he thought the Mackenzie character on her own was attractive. He obviously likes the joy. So, together, because it's like it's a weird thing where he's having sex with a real woman or a real girl, but then technically, is this really even real? Because she's a replicant. But then, while having sex with his AI partner that's put onto her, it's like a whole thing. And not just a replicant, but a replicant who's working for the one-eyed woman who like puts a tracker on him and yeah. like is following him and manipulating him a bit. I don't think that those characters do anything bad. In fact, they end up saving his life once he gets attacked in Vegas. And that's oh my god, man! There's this one transition between when they're out in the desert there and the fire. Oh, transition to you're the following city. Yeah, sparks. All time. Yeah. All time, oh, yeah. it sparks into the snow and, and then the ad city. lights up. Oh my fucking god! That's like top that might be like maybe the best transition i've ever seen yeah it's 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 might be the best. fucking crazy i was like kind of gobsmacked to learn there are no green screens used in the making of this picture yeah that blew me away. Like, Wait, what i was like what are you like, how <laughs> what do you mean no cg that melding scene he was just saying they just did two plates they had uh i think they had dearmas do it first and then they had mackenzie davis do it second just imitating her and then the visual effects team spliced them together. There was no green screen. And that even made sense because they wanted to use the lighting installation so that they would have the same lighting so it was looking like they were in the same space. You could see how this movie gets made by like a Michael Bay or some whatever lesser director mm-hmm. and a lesser cinematographer and how much worse this movie would be. Oh, easily. How it turns into like a two and a half or a three. 
But I think even if it's not deacons, until this other podcast, I didn't realize how much his wife helps him too. Like I thought that was great at the Q&A, how you hear like their true partnership and it's weed, but she's a lot of the ideas and stuff that they use. Mm-hmm. And like their lighting models, like how they kind of sketch and plan out how things are going to be lit. I believe she's a big part of that as well. And that's what makes sense. I think that's awesome. And so it's like, you could see how, even if it was the knee, but it's, you know, a young Craig Frazier or whatever cinematographer, how sure, you know, sure. there would have been some details here or there that aren't what it is. But it's like the combination of them two, I don't think you'd come up with a better director or better cinematographer to do this film. You know, it's just such a perfect blend of what they bring to the table and making everything feel so human, making everything feel so personal and emotionally driven. And I think that's why that pace and the length work is because for as long as it is, you're just really glued into the experiences, particularly of Kay, but just of everybody. You know, like I even think about like the girl, Staline. I think is her name, Dr. Staline, who's like the memory maker living inside that like glass cage and shit like that. Yeah. There's just a lot of those little tiny parts that make you kind of feel something. I mentioned or already love the character who is like kind of the bad guy, kind of the antagonist. But I, I feel for her too. Like she's just doing her job. <laughs> oh, she's great. I don't know if she's been anything yeah. big, but she's so good. She is like really, 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 really good in this movie. Yeah. Sylvia Hex is her name. Yeah, follow her on Instagram. Yeah, she's from the Netherlands, I think. Oh, Netherlands. Yeah, so she was actually just in this recent short film by David Lowry, the director of The Green Knight, called Oak Thorn and the Old Rose of Love. I've seen her in a couple things. I'm trying to see what else I've seen her in. She is standout to me in terms of, again, another one of those, obviously these are all good movies we're talking about, like the perfect casting things, where that to me, that's like a, it was pretty lesser known actress but like if if that's a different person that role isn't as strong but like even like the little moment whenever he makes the new model and he's yeah. talking he hasn't cut her yet but i forgot what jerry little's character is saying wallace is saying about the dead space between the stars and, and but, no, but she has one tear come on yeah he slices the stomach of the girl that she like shakes and then when it goes back onto her she has another tear going like that's such well, good acting to me his little eye robots that he uses, that's another like very ghost in the shell thing. There's one that's like right looking at her. It's monitoring yeah. her expression as this is happening. I think she has like three on her. I think there's the one up close and there's like two more Ooh. to the side. It's because he wants to intimidate her. He's basically saying, like, look, if you don't figure this out, it's a failure. It's on you. <laughs> but then it's almost like a dog leaves her with a compliment to Yeah. You're the best or whatever. Yeah. Which is what she says, like, right before she fucking dies, before she gets fucking oh, I'm the best, yeah. Uh, I, I loved learning that that whole final sequence, they filmed it James Cameron style in tanks. Uh, you didn't know that before? No. So, like, I knew that the seawall was CG because it's kind of obvious that it is. It looks amazing. It's not obvious because it looks bad. It's obvious because it's a giant fucking seawall. Again, the best CG that has looked at a movie to me. But no, I didn't know that final part was filmed tanks. Inside the tank, yeah. And I think what was cool to learn is that they had the tank at like 70, 75 degrees, so it was warm because they were filming in it, but they were filming in Canada where it was cold. No, Budapest. So you have, oh, is it Budapest? Yeah, it was Budapest. When they did the storyboarding, it was on Quebec. That's right. That was in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it was cold outside, so you have this fog coming off of the warm water, kind of like fogging up the lenses that I think adds this incredible atmosphere and texture to those final scenes and the lighting of the blue and the orange from the Mm -hmm. cars like oh Oh, god okay so 
tell me if you think I'm crazy here. This movie has a very feminine quality to all of its imagery. And particularly, it's always struck me as like a movie about subjugating Mother Nature, subjugating Gaia, the Mother Earth. Even like when you go to Vegas, you have these like clockwork orange-esque naked lady statues that are like fucking contorted because it's Vegas, right? And you go in to see a show and the strippers and whatever. But the whole movie is about trying to harness the gift of life, the gift of birth. That's what Nyander Wallace is trying to achieve. It's about suffocating the earth, but you also feel like the earth is about to like collapse or the wave is going to come down on humanity from the seawall. There's just so much of this movie to me that feels like the idea of industry as these big male phallic towers of like fucking authority that are just kind of running roughshod over women. And that's just kind of like a characteristic, I think, that is interesting. Again, it's just kind of like visual motifs. It's not really anything that's like textual in the film. Although you do have, you know, the prominence of like Joy being almost like a digital sex slave in a sense. If she's a real person, then you're basically saying, hey, I bought you. You need to love me now, (laughs) right? That kind of shit. That's all over this movie. Mm. No, yeah. And so when it comes to that final scene, when you have that little spinner pod that's out in the water, it's always kind of looked like a fetus or a womb covered in like amniotic fluid. It looks like a baby. You know, it just looks like something that's being sucked into the ocean that way, this little bubble. And I just, I read a lot of the imagery in that kind of context. Because I do think it's about, you know, even with those opening title cards, it's like the ecosystem's collapsed. It's just kind of about the direction of unfettered technological and capitalist progress. Yeah, even how, uh, while saying you said the feminine thing, I thought, it opens on a woman's eye in the beginning. The very fucking mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what this. I don't know what to drop on that, but I fucking just love that it opens like that. Just the sound uh, blaring at you. I'm assuming that's a replicant's eye, right? I would think so. Yeah, I was thinking it might be the doctor's, but it's like a blonde girl with green eyes. Yeah, that's not what she looks like. Yeah, but it's also just an homage to that original film. Yeah, yeah. on the green eye, but it's got the reflections of the fire in it and everything. Yeah, this one's way more like sterile and clean. Yeah, like in a lab. The relationship that I would say that exists between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 is that Blade Runner is kind of like Panasonic, and 2049 is more like Apple. It's, Hmm. you know, modeling after the technology of the time. In the 80s, it's very analog, chunky, kind of like Atari shit. And then in the 2010s, it's like sleek Apple, iPhone. You know, it's softer, rounded edges, things like that. And I think that each movie kind of resembles period of technology that it was inspired from mm-hmm. and then ah. you know, obviously imagines it further into the future Denis has said it before one two things me i'm pissed that he said he'll never release any of the either longer cut or any like no kind of director's cut for this movie basically he said like the cut of this movie that exists is the one that i wanted and it's like my brother i want to see what else you would have like <laughs> what do you mean like give me the four hour director's cut Denis. i know it's there some for Dune, I want that a little bit more because it's got so many characters and so many like little just what I assume are like, I've seen pictures where it's like Josh Brolin's playing this little string instrument or like Rebecca Ferguson's holding this banquet and she's in like a red gown. I need the 12 hour Dune trilogy extended editions. (laughs) I really could see how that would improve Dune, making it feel more like a world. This feels right to me. Like this, I don't really see what I need added to this i think it just 
is completely satisfying front to oh, back. No, for sure. It's more just for me. I'd want to see like every scene that they did more so. But yeah, I think it's perfectly paced. Yeah, Dune, I think he probably wanted to, the scenes that they cut was legit probably just for time. It was already right. three hours, which sucks. Right. It's like if people weren't babies, right. we could, I will sit there for four hours. I did it when I saw Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King one's like four hours and 40 minutes or something. Yeah. I sat there the whole time. Okay, I'm locked in, man. <laughs> you know, speaking of long movies, our next episode that Cole and I are doing is on the Hungarian movie Saint Tango. I just watched it's like seven hours, like seven hours and change. Goodness actually. gracious. It's uh it's a big boy. It's split into like three parts, which makes it a little bit more digestible. But okay. yeah, big big fella. Two intermissions. What was the other Denis point I had? That oh that he said that he would like to do like another Blade Runner film. But obviously, like different characters, like in the future. Yeah, it actually kind of ends on a few different notes where I'm like, we could totally pick up this story again of like the replicant revolution, or like, is there going to be a war? Or like, what's going on? Because there's so much happening besides just what's going on with K. Like, K's story is complete, but there's more. K's story is the beginning of a larger story to me. Yeah, kind of this awakening. That's why I'm kind of mad. You know, old man Ridley Scott revisiting a lot of his past works that he's getting that Blade Runner, I think it's going to be called 2099. Is it a series? It's a Not series. Movie, right? Yeah. Through Prime. Because it's like, no, if anyone was going to come back, I wanted it to be Denis. And I love Ridley Scott. Yeah. But like, do new things. Like, do shit like Napoleon. Even Gladiator 2, like, I hope that's good, but I'm worried about it. Because like, obviously, yeah. with like Prometheus and Avian Glen Covenant, well, those are fine, but they didn't need to exist. You know, the thing that makes me think that it might work there is just that prometheus and covenant are probably the most interesting when they're about the androids as opposed to when they're about the xenomorphs and the aliens and everything yeah just fastbender so i can see why even alien i've always thought like the android character in the original alien is really one of the most compelling parts of yes. the entire idea so i see why you know there's still interest in doing that but yeah villeneuve is really the guy that i would love to see go back to it although i'm sort of hoping that once he gets off of dune part two and hopefully dune messiah that he like gives us give me like a prisoners give me like an enemy sicario like he give, said give me something dirty and gritty. i'm gonna look it up but he said what he's doing after dune uh, oh i saw that he wants to do a cleopatra movie with zendaya being a oh. star <laughs> what that's fucking wild that's an interesting one but he i don't know any movie he wants to do i'd be for it <laughs> any final thoughts final notes on Blade Runner, on Deacons, on the series. It's kind of crazy that he just finally won with 2049 oh, yeah. and 2017. Like, it took him that long. The Oscars needs to do some kind of like lifetime achievement award for him. Or I'm sure they do something like that. But like, while he's still alive, like the next time he gets nominated, I'm a big person of giving people flowers while they're still around. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel like he deserves that recognition. I would have been so pissed if like Shape of Water had won over this for cinematography. <laughs> Oh my. I, I would have been fine. I, I love Shape of Water. I think that's a great movie. I think it's a great looking movie. I think that's shot by Dan Laustsen. Yeah, you're it's really right. good. It really is mystifying that it took until 2017. Like, none of those Coen Brothers movies, like, not one of them. Fucking Fargo won Best Actress. It can't, like, nothing for cinematography. Okay, sure. Why not? That's fine. <laughs> it just kind of boggles the mind. I think the closest was probably that 2007 when it was up against There Will Be Blood and just happened to lose to that great movie. But Denis yeah. not getting nominated for directing was crazy. Fucking wild, especially because he had already been nominated for director the previous year for Arrival. So he had already been established and then eventually like Dune 
He didn't get a director nom for Dune either. They got a bunch of technicals, but not director. Wait, what? Weird. Yeah, no, no nomination. That was um, which Oscars was that? Was that Spielberg? Yeah, Spielberg, Campion, Branagh, PTA for Licorice Pizza, and I forget who the fifth was. I mean, I gotta see it. That's crazy. Yeah, it's Spielberg, Kenneth Branagh, Jane Campion for Drive My Car. Oh yeah, how the fuck did I forget? Fucking Hamaguchi, Jesus Christ. And Nicholas Pizza. <laughs> my bad. That's literally my favorite of the five. Whoops. Belfast directing nomination, but not Denis for Dune. Nasty work. Gross. Nasty. Yeah, he doesn't have one yet. I hope, I hope this Dune Part 2 is such a banger. Should have went for Arrival. Should have yeah? went for Arrival. What year was that? 2016. But like, that, that was uh, Chazelle. Would that be 2017 Oscars? 2017. For yeah, Moonlight? Chazelle, Moonlight won Best Picture, but Chazelle won Director for La La Land. Easily should have been Benny. Yeah, I would have given a rival over... Actually, okay, I can't lie. I haven't seen La La Land. I need to watch it because I like Emma Stone and Gosselin. Yeah. But um, I'm trying to think. Any last points? No? I mean, Deacons is definitely... I don't know. He's my goat for cinematographers. I fucking... You said Shawshank, Blade Runner, Prisoners. I fucking love 1917. That's like a top five movie. That's because... I love the one-shot thing. I love it's World War One. I. I love World War One. The running scene, obviously. Oh, God, I should ask him a question about that, dude. About shooting yeah, that it was kind of weird. We didn't get a lot of Mendy's. Not a lot of people asking about the Mendy's movies. Someone had like one Skyfall thing, or Skyfall came up a couple times. Yeah, Skyfall did come up. I really enjoyed how during the Q&A, Roger and James just answered every single question. It was like a 90-minute or longer Q&A. Not all the questions were very good, but they gave but they answered everything. answers. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. Thankfully, I was very impressed that nobody did any dumb bullshit like, what's your favorite movie you've ever shot? Or like, who's your favorite director to shoot for it? Because like, he's not going to answer that, you fucking idiots. But so thankfully, we didn't get that, which a lot of directors got. I saw Francis Ford Coppola was on Instagram. Doing oh, that shit. no, that one guy, I remember, was shouting out his buddy and then said like, would you ever make a Star Wars movie? Yeah. Everybody <laughs> laughed, but like... No, I'm not even kidding. A Star Wars trilogy it would with cook. Denis directing and Roger shooting would be like my dream. Give them everything. That would be legit. Like I could not let them cook. That'd be the best <laughs> thing ever. Could you imagine? Like they're just like free reign. Do it like Old Republic or something where it's like nothing to do with current canon and just be like, y'all just fucking cook. I just think it would be too similar to Dune for Villeneuve probably to really get into it. Because Dune is already so much like the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Well, because Star Wars takes it from Dune. I know, I know, I know. But that's what I'm saying. Is I sort of feel like once you've done Dune, there's not as much reason to like go do that. It would be interesting because it would be so not an action movie. It would be so unlike. Yeah, give me Blade Star Runner, Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Like, Jesus, man. It would have to be like a one-off. <laughs> I don't think it could be a trilogy. I don't know. But I mean, if Lucasfilm was for real and Disney was for real, they would do let it. Let them cook. It's surprised they the even bag. let him. Yes. Especially because I feel like post-Dune, Denis is going to be a big enough name. Because the next three movies, I don't even know the one who's directing the Ray movie. I like Filoni getting his movie, and then Mangold is getting the other one. Oh. And it's like, we're giving movies to Mangold, bro. You can talk to <laughs> Denis. Even like that movie, with the premise of that movie, you tell me you can't get Denis to do that? But they never try. No, probably not. I think he would screen the call. I feel like you're either a Denis person or you aren't. Yeah. I feel like he's really well-liked, especially on Twitter, like especially online. And everybody that I see that has issues with Denis Villeneuve, like I kind of get it. You know, seeing Sicario and Blade Runner back-to-back, or really close to -to back-to-back, it's a colder style. I would never say that it was like distant or unemotional in 
any way, but it's kind of got this like sophisticated tone while not always necessarily like like feeling a little bit like pulpy or something. I don't know. I sort of get where no. people are coming from because they want him to be looser. They want him to be like a little bit more like Ridley Scott and a little bit less like he is, which is very polished. He almost reminds me of like a you mentioned his name a few times. He almost reminds me of like Fincher, but he's not as like lurid and nasty and freaky with his movies as Fincher is. So I sort of think like that's where the rub comes from with most people who dislike him is that kind of cold intensity. It's that whole this thing is popular now I have to hate on it. I think that's part of it. It's kind of come for him. I truly think that once things get popular, it's also just that they start people who they're not really for i started off talking about the blade runner thing like i'm surprised that blade runner is as well liked and popular as it is because it feels like there should be a really large segment of people that are like i don't give a fuck about this long slow sci-fi movie why am i watching this and i think that Villeneuve's popularity garners him some of that it attracts a level of scrutiny that maybe you wouldn't get if you were just making a movie like enemy or on sundays which are quite a bit smaller than blade runner but in general, he's pretty much leveled up in terms of scale and stayed very successful in terms of critical and people being fans and supportive, especially if that sellout screening was anything to go off of. Fucking just really cool to see that with a big crowd. It's the Virgin Tarantino favorite director and the Chad Denny best man director. <laughs> I did not realize Ringo was Deacon's too. Yeah, lighting scripts, I think. There's some other animated thing I worked on, but I can't remember what it is. Oh, How to Train Your Dragon. Ooh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, he has a credit on that. Roger Deakins, one of the greats. We look forward to his next film project, whatever that's going to be. I don't they think kind of alluded to it. Yet. They said they were in talks for something, and I was yeah. like, what is it? I need to know. <laughs> like, thanks so much for coming on. I really had a blast getting to see all these movies with you. I was really glad yeah, you sure. got to come back to town. It's been great having the, you on the pod to get to talk about Roger Deakins, Denny Villeneuve, yep. Coen Brothers. Yep, yep. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Had a blast. Yep. It's been great. So thank you guys all for listening and stay tuned next week. Cause as I've mentioned, we have uh, an episode coming out about Bellatar in terms of other austere, but really sophisticated filmmakers. And you can check out our previous episodes on across the spider verse. We've got our check and select new wave episodes, guardians of the galaxy, and we got a bunch more fun stuff coming up throughout the summer. So thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day. Bye everybody. Sweet.